with workaholism. Everything is always a threat and everything is always a crisis. So our bodies are in this constant fight or flight mode. And that constant activation has been linked to a whole host of negative health outcomes. Hello and welcome back or welcome to The Messy Middle. I'm your host, Andrew Horsfield. This is the 50th episode of the podcast, so I just wanted to start by saying a couple of quick thank yous. Firstly, to those listeners who've supported the podcast from the very beginning, who've helped build a loyal listenership of over 20,000 people, thank you. Thanks for tuning in every month and supporting the podcast. And secondly, to all of the previous guests who have generously given your time and valuable insights to help us all find better ways to work, lead and live, thank you. Thanks for being the curators of the content that have made the podcast so well received. So thank you to you all from a very humble and very thankful host. Are you feeling constantly under pressure and overwhelmed? Are you taking work home with you or finding it hard to switch off? If so, this conversation with Melissa Clark is really going to resonate with you. Melissa is an Associate Professor of Industrial and Organisational Psychology at the University of Georgia, and she's just written a brilliant book called Never Not Working, Why the Always-On Culture is Bad for Business and How to Fix It. This is a deeply insightful book that's gained attention and accolades from people like Adam Grant and Daniel Pink because of the beautifully way it's written and explores why a large percentage of us are overworking and how we can face and fix our own tendencies to be tethered to work, which is how we approach this conversation discussing important issues like why we overcommit to work, common tendencies we should be aware of, and it's not just how many hours we're working each week, why hustle cultures are harmful, and the things that we can all do to achieve excellence as well as endurance. Melissa provides a practical voice to a common problem most of us face. How can we manage the competing demands of modern life? It's time to listen and learn as we speak with Associate Professor, Author and Proud Working Mum, Melissa Clark. Melissa, thank you for joining me on The Messy Middle. I am excited about this conversation for, for people who feel like they're they're tethered to work or think sort of nine to five is just a Dolly Parton movie. You know, I think there's going to be a whole lot of stuff that we can jump into here. So welcome. It's awesome to have you on on The Messy Middle. Thank you for having me. So I just wanted to, to start off, you, you talk about workaholics in, in the book, and I just wanted to jump straight into, was that a conscious term that you used in the book to sort of stimulate the meaning behind what you were trying to get people to think about? Yeah, I really wanted to stick with the term that is used in the scientific literature. And so I'm actually not in love with the term. I feel like it kind of, people tend to think, oh, that's not a real thing. It, it is a play on the word alcoholism. And so uh, I feel like people sometimes have a, a negative reaction to the term workaholism. So is it my favorite term? No. 
the reason I kind of stuck with it in the book is, again, to be in line with how researchers, including myself, have talked about it and studied it and also to differentiate it from simply just the number of hours worked because workaholism is not just that. It's it's more. Yeah, I, I love that aspect that you took in the book. Tell us more about that because I think people think about that like, oh, man, I'm working so hard being that quantum of hours and you have a very different spin and I thought it was terrific. Tell, tell us a little bit more about that. The way that um, I think about workaholism is it does involve long work hours for sure. That's the behavioral component. And so workaholics tend to work more than they need to. They take work with them wherever they go, whether it's on vacation or whatnot. And, but in addition to that, there's the compulsive aspect of workaholism. So part of this is what we call introjected motivation. So this is feeling like you ought to be working all the time. It's almost like a pit in your stomach urge like, oh yeah, I know I should be working or yeah, I just feel like I should be productive. I can't be sitting around just doing nothing. Uh, so that's the compulsion part. And with any compulsion, it it also involves constantly thinking about that thing. And so in this case, constant thoughts about work, very difficult to shut it off in our brains. So we're constantly thinking about work. Maybe it's even keeping us up at night. And when we have these thoughts and we have these feelings that we should be working, we oftentimes experience negative emotions. So whether it's guilt or just anxiety or feeling unsettled, sometimes even frustrated when something kind of prevents us from being able to work, even though we're not on work time, for example. So it's multifaceted. It's not just long hours. It's also the compulsive feelings and thoughts and emotions about work. Is this an individual thing that comes from history, background, nurture, what our parents did? Is it a cultural part of an organization of, you know, the routines we have and, oh my God, it's 9.30, you know, and you're just getting here sort of stories. Is it a combination of both? Mm -hmm. How does this start to manifest in people? It is a combination. There is some research tying um, some personality traits to workaholism. So there does seem to be an innate component. So for example, individuals that are type A personality, very hard driving, tend to be perfectionists. Those personality traits tend to be associated with workaholism or workaholic uh, tendencies. However, even individuals that aren't workaholics or don't identify as workaholics, there is also research showing that the environment around us, for example, the work culture, wherever um, we are, uh, you know, working day in and day out, how the organization or the people in the organization think about work can influence and shape uh, aspects of how we think about work. And so I like to think of it as it's partly an individual difference, but it can be exacerbated or activated when we are in environments that foster that sort of negative compulsion towards our work. Yeah. 
So if we split those just for a, for a moment. So as an individual, I'm thinking about the person who spends a lot of time doing the mundane task to the best of their ability rather than maybe let them go. And so they're they're not necessarily focusing on their best work for their best task. It's just 100% perfect and right and accurate, which keeps them time poor. Is that sort of what you're thinking about with that cognitive behavioral drive? I think that definitely is a component of it for sure. This feeling that it needs to be perfect um, and you need to keep on working. So for the book, I interviewed a bunch of individuals who I connected with through the organization Workaholics Anonymous. And so a lot of their stories, I kept on hearing the same sorts of patterns that pretty much anything they did, they felt like they had to fully complete it before they could do anything else for their personal well-being. And um, even if it was not a super complicated project, it may be as simple as completing a to-do list of 10 tasks that they, they take some time, but, you know, it's not rocket science or anything, but not allowing themselves to do anything else until all of those things were checked off their list, including eating lunch or going to the restroom. You know, it does seem to be partly internal. You know, I myself identify as someone who struggles with these workaholic tendencies. And it's something I've always kind of felt, even when I was a, a kid, you know, when I was in grade school and middle school and high school, I joined all the clubs, like so many of them. And I was doing sports and I had one or two part-time jobs at the same time. And so it's that idea of having to do so many different things, not because of my parents telling me I had to, but I don't know. I just kind of felt like this is what I need to do. This is, this is what I need to do to be a successful student and now in the workplace, a a successful worker. And, you know, part of it is perfectionism and part of it is this internal compulsion of really having a hard time staying idle, Mm -hmm. really having a hard time just focusing on ourselves and not other people and other things. Yeah. And it's not just the the individual who who suffers from that, right? There's, there's people at home. Mm-hmm. And so it's a broader um, impact than just the, the person that you're explaining who's, who's suffering with these tendencies. Absolutely. Yeah. So I also interviewed more than 50 spouses of workaholics and it, you know, my research assistants helped with these. And I can tell you, it, it really felt sometimes like we were a counselor in a marriage therapy session Uh, Just given the enormity of issues that were brought up and, you you know, you name it going from, well, I just feel like I had all the burden of the childcare and the housework because my spouse was never around to, you know, we have zero intimacy. It's killed the romance. I have felt like I am wanting a divorce, you know, you name it, we heard it. And, uh, oh, and the you know, stories of the kids being affected by the workaholics behavior. So even when they were there with the family, spouses were saying they just weren't present in the moment. They weren't 
focused on the kids and the kids were constantly trying to get their attention, but they were always either working or you could tell their mind was in another place. Um, People taking family vacations without the workaholic. So yes, definitely a lot of really heartbreaking effects on their families. Yeah. And in those interviews, were were people that you were interviewing, were they feeling like, look, I've just got to get this done because it's the role I'm in or it's the project I'm working on or it's the time of the year and justifying why that was happening? Or was it more, look, I, I see this and I know it's not helpful and I, but I can't change or I'm finding change difficult. Given that these were individuals that were a part of Workaholics Anonymous, they already had a community that was supporting them. They were already trying to make some changes. And so I do feel like a lot of the people that I spoke with recognized that it wasn't all the situation. I remember talking with one woman who she thought it was a problem with her job and the occupation. She was a professor. And so she ended up quitting her job and going to a a completely different job. You know, it was a government job. So the hours were completely nine to five and there were good vacation days. And she still was having the same problems with not being able to turn work off in her head, even though she wasn't on the clock. And so then she realized, okay, well, some of this is me. (laughs) And, you know, so it's not all the environment. I will say that some people talked about really horrific environments too, that they really have an overworked culture. And so again, the environment can certainly exacerbate some of the tendencies we, we have. Can you share a little bit about how organizations contribute to this, this cultural, these tendencies that people are trying to escape in being tethered to, to work? Absolutely. So for this, I think drawing from sociology has been really helpful in thinking about, you know, what do we value and uh, kind of put up on a pedestal on a societal level. And uh, Marie Blair Loy, she's a sociologist, and she talks about the ideal worker norms that still are so prevalent in organizations and workplaces today. And it's this idea that work should be the most important thing to you. So you prioritize work above everything else. And that's, that's the ideal worker. And also the ideal worker is someone who is constantly available to the organization. And so that ends up influencing how CEOs um, structure the work environment and how that's passed down and kind of the messages that are sent to everyone else in the organization. And when we think about a, a workaholic culture, it's really a culture that worships this ideal worker and they make it known that this is what they want based on the norms and patterns um, in that organization and also the reward system. You know, who is getting the promotions? Is it the employee that slept in their office and worked all weekend? And are those the reasons that they're getting promoted? Is the norm in the company that people just don't take their vacation days? And so that's, you know, just some examples of how a, an organization can 
promote and, you know, put on a pedestal this, this ideal worker. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really insightful um, perspective, Melissa. So what's the balance between the tendencies you're talking about and some of those incidental moments or projects where we do need to be fully engaged in what we're doing to finish something off or take an opportunity that, that might advance ourselves or our life or just be a really fun thing for people to do? Yeah. I'm not against hard work. Absolutely. And I also recognize uh, that there are circumstances and times of the year or times in your career when you want to and have to spend those long hours on the project. Like you said, I felt, you know, I think just a part of life to have, you know, busy periods or things that you just have to spend those long hours. But if it's all the time in every job, every day of the year, that's when you might have some workaholic tendencies. Yeah. What are the warning signs that people should look for to say, oh, maybe I am heading in that direction or or maybe I'm there ensconced in it? Yeah. So there is quite a bit of research on the health impacts of workaholism, Uh, anything from heart disease to sleep issues, high blood pressure, other things like autoimmune diseases. And so the rationale for why there is this link, there's a couple things. You know, if we think about our our bodies, when we are in this kind of frantic workaholic state that, you know, usually it's like, well, everything's a crisis. Everything has to be done right now. Um, you have this adrenaline surge it's almost like we're in this fight or flight response, which, you know, we're hardwired to automatically go into that when we have a threat. But the healthy pattern is once the threat is gone, we go back to baseline. You know, our cortisol levels go back to normal and we can, you know, be ready for the next threat. With workaholism, everything is always a threat and everything is always a crisis. So our bodies are in this constant fight or flight mode and that constant activation has been linked to a whole host of negative health outcomes. Um, And then coupled with that, because workaholics have a hard time shutting work off, then they don't really um, engage in effective what we call recovery experiences that, you know, the same kind of thing as getting yourself back to baseline. You know, we need that time to disconnect from work so that we can replenish the energy that we have spent that day. I think you mentioned some of the warning signs, recognizing how you personally work. Do you have a hard time shutting work off at the end of the day? Do you think about work all the time, no matter kind of where you are? Do you tend to overcommit? and take on project after project. One of the things that I found really interesting that I hadn't thought of before I was talking with um, one of the women that I interviewed was she introduced me to the concept of working light. And I was like, well, what is that? And she said, well, for me, it's after hours, I'll pour myself a glass of wine and do some work at the same time. So I'll be checking my email while I'm having this glass of wine. And I rationalize it to myself that I'm not really working because I'm also enjoying this other thing. And 
So for me, I started thinking about that. And my version of working light is usually uh, when I'm watching a TV show, for example, we like to binge our shows in, in our house and we have some favorites. So what I noticed is that every time I would sit down on the couch to watch a TV show, I would have this overwhelming urge to grab my laptop and put it in my lap and do, you know, emails or something small, some small task. And that made me feel better. That is another example of working light that maybe it's a good indicator to kind of pay attention to in your own life. Are you doing these sorts of things? That is one clue that you might have some of these workaholic tendencies. Yeah, really great example for people to think about. Thank you. We've been talking about overworking and burnout for, for quite some time now. What, why do you think we struggle so much to do that rest recover cycle and, and look after ourselves? I feel like some people do a better job than others um, in really prioritizing wellness activities, whether it's exercise or mindfulness or meditation with myself and a lot of the people I spoke to. Uh, technology was kind of problematic in many ways, having our email going right to our phones, always accessible, always kind of tempted to just check our email and see if anything new came up. Technology made it much easier to be working at all hours and, you know, working from home. I'm a huge fan, actually. I love working from home um, and I do it a lot, but it can blur the lines between work and non-work. I don't want to blame it all on technology because it's certainly not, but it's one of the things that I think makes it a lot harder for us to disconnect. One of the things that I, I found really um, insightful in your book, and you may have covered this off with the the technology side of things, but how the world's changed a little bit too in terms of promoting some of the tendencies of us to be overworking Something that we haven't talked about specifically is how our work patterns during COVID may have changed how we uh, communicate with other people at our work now. And one example, um, Microsoft conducted some studies of the use of their platforms like Teams, for example, and keystroke data. And what they found was during COVID, there was a third peak of productivity in the evenings. And, you know, in, in my opinion, having, having kids and you have kids too, you could imagine that at this time when kids were at home all day and parents were having to homeschool essentially their kids during the day, some work tasks had to get shoved to later. And so in the evenings, you put the kids to bed and you go grab your laptop and you catch up on the work that you weren't able to do during the day. And during COVID, this was a necessity, right? Especially if both members of the couple were working. And so that's kind of what they were seeing with some of the people in their study was this third peak of productivity in the evening. But my hunch is that a lot of people kind of got used to having their coworkers accessible and being able to accomplish tasks with their teams in the evening and kind of just kept that bad habit going. But we're really not hearing anything about conversations around, well, we used to communicate with each other at, at very odd hours and that became 
you know, the norm, but we really need to rein that back now that everything is, you know, we've kind of come out of the pandemic and gone back to quote unquote normal. And so that is the other thing that I think is really important to talk about how you are interacting and, you know, people in your organization are interacting with each other. So can you tell us a bit more about that rumination as part of this whole workaholism and those tendencies? Yeah. So one of the main indicators of, you know, that someone might have some workaholic tendencies is the work rumination and, you know, really having a hard time shutting it off in our minds. And it can be like thinking about that email. It's, you know, you're thinking about things that happened. You're thinking about things that will happen. um, But regardless, you're thinking about work. And so really having a hard time shutting that off is is a key indicator that you might have some of these um, tendencies. Absolutely. How do people start to identify those tendencies in themselves? And what are the steps that they can just make a start to mitigate some of those? Yeah, I think the first step is really just to treat yourself as uh, the the subject in your own experiment and start recording your workaholic patterns. One you know suggestion could be to set a timer on your phone for a few random evening hours and weekend times that when it goes off, think about what you've been doing over the last hour before that alarm went off. Were you working? Were you thinking about work? Um, and the whole point is to really start to identify maybe trends or maybe you didn't even realize that you were working light, for example. And so really first, just trying to understand your own tendencies, your own patterns, and then some strategies. One thing that I find helpful is to really recognize that with workaholics, everything seems urgent, but Really, and if you think about the tasks in our job, a lot of things we do can wait until the next day. It's not life or death, you know. And so really trying to redefine what is urgent in your to-do list and try to categorize and and use that to-do list as a way of prioritizing the things that are urgent and actually do need to have your focus and finding ways to um, you know, delegate some of the other things or take them off your list in, in other ways, maybe move them to the next week. You know, really the whole point is trying to recognize that you're never going to get to the end of your to-do list. I think we can all agree the to-do list can be never ending. We'll, we'll always find more things to add. Um, another thing that can be helpful is making sure you're adding non-work things to your to-do list. And so I found this helpful for myself when I looked at my to-do list for the week or for the day, it would, it would overwhelmingly be pretty much everything was work. Maybe one non-work thing. Oh, I need to call the doctor and schedule my kids checkup or whatever. Um, but purposely adding things for your own wellness, your own well-being, um, that walk that we were talking about, making sure that every day you carve out 30 minutes for that walk or whatever it is that you need in order to rest and recover. Yeah, I, I really like that. I think that's a really nice metric for people because it's a, it's a very clear indicator, isn't it, to be able to put those things on. I'm also thinking about the people listening who have got 
a real discrepancy between the life they would like to live and the demand that they feel is being placed on them, whether that's from an organisation or a spouse or kids or you know the billions of things that we've got to get done. Is there anything that you would would like to comment on further around managing that sort of organisational press to your, to our own life and and how we just try and carve out that that sense of our own identity and self and what our priorities are in an organisation when we feel is being maybe unrealistic, even if that's the vernacular and not necessarily the expectation. Yeah, I you know I I recognise that this can be really tough if you're in an organization that it it is the culture and you know you have a a boss that completely doesn't respect your boundaries and has all these expectations that that require you know many many hours to, to finish the projects that are put on your plate you know some people have had success talking to their boss um really the the boss the supervisor is the most direct um, has the most direct impact on kind of your day to day. And so if you can open those lines of communication to the person, and so maybe, unfortunately, the strategy could be move to a different work team, you know, see if you can have a, a lateral transfer to some other role in the organization or, you know, find a different organization. I know that it's a luxury that not everyone has. Right. And, um, but you know, a lot of the people I talked to, um, really it took leaving that negative company culture to be able to implement some of these changes in their life. Yeah. Uh, and I think uh, I, I really um, like your perspective around that sometimes that indicator of I'm not working for a very good boss or I'm working for someone who's demanding and I'm, I'm not going to escape this very easily, it might be the indicator that people need as well. Mm -hmm. Even if it's not quite the outcome people are looking for, it's still a really good indicator either way to have that conversation. Yeah, I agree. It can be so tough though. And I recognize that. I'm really interested in your view where you, you say it's it's sort of our responsibility as, as well in this. Can you explore your own philosophy around that a little bit more? Because I think it's somewhat counterintuitive to what we hear sometimes. Yeah, I think it can be really tough to, um, especially if you're in a an organization where there is this always on culture, to bring up these conversations. Um, it's also really tough to think about work differently. You know, it really struck me when I was reading um, the sociology literature about this ideal worker norm. Um, because it, it, as a, as a, you know, working mom, it almost makes it even more challenging in some ways to strive to be this ideal worker, because at the same time, we're striving to be the ideal mom, which is the one, you know, who's always there for the kids and is the nurturer and the caregiver. And so, not to go on, on too much of a tangent, but I do think one thing that a lot of women who are in the workplace trying to be successful professionals um, feel a lot of guilt about the fact that they're not at home with their kids. And one woman even said to me, well, I, I felt like I had to put everything into work to make it worth it, to make it worth, you know, not being there mm. for my kids and having to go the extra mile to kind of prove 
um, that they were the ideal worker to, to show, you know, their boss and their coworkers that they are prioritizing work. You know, I feel like it can be difficult, but just to keep it in perspective that I'm doing what I value and I'm sticking to what are the priorities in my life, because it's really easy to get caught up in that culture. You know, I'm an academic and I feel like it's very prevalent that professors, you know, just work tons of hours. And when someone asks them, you know, how are you doing? The response is always, oh, I'm super busy. And so to, to actively say to yourself, to your boss, to, you know, people around you, Hey, look, you know, I'm going to put my all into work when I'm there, but you know, you got to respect my boundaries when I'm not at work because this is also important to me. And, and Oh, by the way, you could throw at them. Well, research shows that I need this <laughs> in order to be a better worker. Um, but I, it is very difficult because as a society, that's what we value. That's what we think is what we need to do. Uh, I think it's a really good thing for people to listen to around identifying what matters to them. And then, cause that's the balance of, 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 I think what you're, the book the book's about and certainly what this conversation is about is how do you do that in a proportion where more is always possible and be- better is always possible there's always going to be someone better than you there's always going to be someone working more hours you know and just recognizing that it's okay if you're not that person <laughs> so sometimes it is seeing the the premium and the best and the person who's putting it out but we don't always see that uh, that cost that it's that it's taking and, and um, having this impossible measure that we, we create for ourselves. And I think that's a really great reflection point for people listening. So tell me, I mean, you're a a self-proclaimed workaholic yourself and, and have gone through this process. You you mentioned that a little bit at the start around your upbringing and jumping onto every club that you could. And from a personal perspective, what's worked for you to make the transition uh, to to find more of a successful balance for for yourself and your own experience. Yeah, it's a work in progress, trial and error. Um, I definitely find myself getting caught up in you know that sort of academic working all the time uh, mentality and have to rein it in. Um, some of the things that have worked for me, I do really like carving out that time in my to do list for my walks and the time for me. I also, my kids are really important and I really value the time with them. And so I, for the entire time they were in K through 12, I have put aside between three and 4 PM to pick them up from school. For me, I do have a hard time, um, not working, Uh, especially in the evening, that working light, I struggle with that all the time. I have to consciously like put my laptop down. I, you know, just recently, this shows that I'm I'm still working on this. Just recently, I took my first vacation in my adult working career and didn't bring my laptop with me. And it was a huge milestone for me (laughs) to leave that because You know, I was like, well, what if people are needing to get a hold of me? But it was during break. So technically I wasn't on the clock anyways. Right. You know, making those intentional choices and constantly reminding myself why it's necessary to disconnect and kind of force myself to leave that technology behind. Yeah. 
Yeah. Can I be indulgent and, and suggest something that I found useful for me in this space? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I have a little uh, list on my computer that I, I keep and I, I put them into a five-minute bucket or a 15-minute bucket because I think any time above that's quite easy to find, like 60 minutes on a weekend or it is quite easy, but it's the during the day things that I find really difficult. So as I, I just think about when I hit a moment of, of stress or difficulty or this, this overworking space, I try and think about what would be helpful for just the five minutes that I have. And so one of those as a practical example is I'll turn everything off um, and just sit for five minutes. And if anyone's ever done that, it, it, it seems like an inordinate amount of time. It's, it's so when there's nothing to do right. when in the yeah. middle of. So you don't meditate. I just sit, you, you yeah, sit don't try and, and yeah, meditate silence. or anything. It's just that yeah. pushing everything away for five minutes and not having to worry, panic, quietening the mind to just say, okay, reset, go back. Um, I, I've done it in off-sites where I just get out of the room I'm in. Um, so for people who are in an organisation, um, it might be a quiet room. But I've found those strategies very, very powerful within the course of a day, and that's where that 15-minute one of go for a coffee, just notice what's around me, don't take the phone – and building those into the day, I've personally found really, really useful. So that might be something that others uh, find useful as well. I'll have to add that to my to my daily routine. I love that. You know, I do that during big moments, like before a presentation or something. Um, I find that extremely helpful to relax. And so building that in when it's not something, you know, extreme or over the top, but just a normal day to just take that time. Um, yeah, I could see that being extremely beneficial. Yeah, good one. Well, I'm glad it helped. Um, last couple of questions before we wrap up. What what does a successful life look like for you? Well, um, I guess it's it, being able to pursue my many passions and interests and things that are important to me. So, I you know I've talked a lot about how my family is really important, but I'm also driven to have a successful career, you know, accomplishing these things like writing this book or moving up within my organization. Um, that's important to me and I want to be successful enjoying those interests, but enjoying the the people around me and, you know, um, having this career that I love as well. Your question reminded me of uh, this book called the the five top regrets of the dying, something along that lines. That's not the exact title, but the number two thing on the list was that people wish they hadn't worked so much. And the number one thing on the list was that they wish they would have pursued the life that was most meaningful to them. I think of that and, you know, try to live my life um, thinking about my values and where I want to spend my time. Do they align with my values? The people listening to this podcast, uh, you know, they're coaches, they're parents, they're senior executives in organisations having a, a heavy workload and, and lots on their plate and very much um, people of aspiration. Mm -hmm. Any final tips that we haven't covered off or that we, I haven't asked you that I should have asked you within the, the interview that you'd like to share for people listening about? Uh, about just reducing this this tether that we have to work and not never not working. Yeah, I mean, I think just remember that 
you know, what works for someone else is not going to work for you. I've talked about a few things and, and probably I'm partial to those because they've worked better for me, but honestly, you know, whatever works for you to be able to kind of cut that tether to work. For example, um, a lot of individuals find a lot of um, value out of meditation and mindfulness. And so I'm still working on that for myself. Uh, but for many people, it's life changing. And so con continue to experiment, continue to see what works for you, what doesn't work, and then remind yourself to build those things into your day-to-day -day life. And if things get busy, recognize that when it's less busy, try to, you know, go back to prioritizing yourself and what's important to you. Yeah. Nice one. Melissa, thank you so much. I, I, I think people will get a lot out of listening, um, not only for some of the, the nuggets that you've shared uh, and the wisdom and insight from, from writing such a great book, but equally points of reflection that you've also mentioned and, and invited people into and in how they're working and, and the meaning of work for them. So thank you so much. It's been a terrific conversation. Yeah, this has been really great. Thank you so much for having me. A quick word before we go, just a reminder about the new and exciting initiative, The Better Life Lab. If you want to be first and part of the exclusive launch, go to andrewhorsfield.com forward slash better life lab. Thanks for listening. <laughs>